Spread a little aloha around the world and breakfast with Bob. Thank you, Pancho Man. Welcome, everybody. Breakfast with Bob, our not quite Kona edition. My name is Bob Babbitt. We are brought to you by Master Spas. S Fuels Go Longer, Hoka, Form Smart Swim Goggles, Zoot, the original triathlon brand, Premium Plus Sports, Quintana Roo, Mississippi Hotel, which will be our host for Ironman 70.3 Oceanside Show and our Challenge Athletes Foundation. In our first 30 years, we've raised $147 million and sent out over 40,000 grants to keep challenged athletes in the game of life through sport. Our next guest, one of our favorite people on the planet, six-time Ironman World Champion, first inductee into the Ironman Hall of Fame, Mr. Dave Scott, the man. How you doing, D? Hello, Bob. I love your backdrop there, Hawaii and Poncho giving that Glorious introduction because I'm looking at snow out here right now in Colorado. <laughs> so I'd like to to be where you are at least visually. Hey, so speaking of Kona, Ironman moving uh, men's will be in Nice, which is obviously an epic race, and women will be in Kona. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Ironman's not going to like my comments. I probably uh, they avoided me because they knew what I thought about it. I, I think. Uh, a couple things. Historically, it takes away the magnitude of the event. Uh, the history of our sport really lies in Kona. Having the men and the women on the same day on the same course brings out the grandiose atmosphere of that event. It's now no longer going to be that. Uh, I, I think the, sec the second part is if you compare this with other uh, historical events and other sports, would you ever fraction the Wimbledon and say the men are going to go to Afghanistan and play and the women are going to be in Wimbledon and then we're going to flip it around? It loses the flavor and the luster of the of the sport. And I think when we, we, we look at the history of the sport and, and taking that away where it's so iconic, not just Hawaii, but Hawaii and the Ironman in Kona men and women racing on the same day and comparing all that over the years in the history. And, and obviously I'm an old goat. So it Me goes too. back, it goes back, you know, a long time. So there's a, a little bit of, you know, why are they doing that? I understand a lot of the reasons why it has to be done that way. And, and, and maybe just because the number of events and the entries and, and the physical size of the, the setup uh, for Kona. And it also comes back to the, locals in Kailua that said, you know, we can't do this over two days. That, right. that was that made it extremely difficult. So I'm not a fan of it. Is there a way to bring it back on one day? I, I would really look at stretching out that transition area from the swim to the bike and maybe they move it out in front of the Kona surf and they they change the that complex. Obviously we're limited just by size, the buildings, the road and so on. Is that possible? I don't know. I'm not a logistics guy, but I would like to see it back one day, one event as it's been. You know, it was interesting. I really enjoyed the the two days this year because I thought it was cool having the men pros out there cheering the women on, the women pros out there cheering the men on, all of us in the same island that same week. Financial impact of 6,000 people on the island had to be huge. So, you know, I would have liked to have seen maybe more effort on both sides to work out the details. Hey, 
Thursday is, is people are at work, people are at school. Okay, let's make it a holiday. Let's get the kids out. Like in St. George, the schools are, I think, are closed when they're doing the St. George race on Friday. Uh, they That's just the way it is. So I don't know. I, I agree with you. Obviously, I'm an old goat as well. And writing the, the books on the history of Ironman, it's it's all about Hawaii and the heat and the lava fields and, and the history. You know, you, you've got the history of people who've been doing it forever. Like, And one of the things I wanted to talk about, because we're on the 30th anniversary of 1983, and people think of you and Mark Allen, it's connected. But in those early years, you and Scott Tinley, if you think about it, you know, you you won in in um you won the race in 80, and then in 82, in February of 82, ST wins, you get second. 82, you win, he gets second. 83, you win, he gets second, and it goes on from there. So for a lot of years, Tinley was sort of the guy for you. Yeah, he was always one of the guys, you know, he was always um one of my nemesis going into the race because I knew he'd race well. And as you just said, it's actually 40 years, Bob. You said 30, but it's 40. I'm sorry, 40 years since that yeah, race. Sorry, 40 sorry, sorry. years. Yeah. I'm thinking 30 years since, uh, yeah, 40 no, years. Yeah, no, I've, I've aged. I'm 45 now. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Ouch. Yeah, so Scott Scott's all, was always ferocious and he raced all over the world and did all different events, but he'd always be ready in Kona. So we, we did have those battles. They had two events in, in 82, as you cited, and Scott beat me in the February one. I was able to win in, in October, and then it, all of a sudden we're back in October in 83. And it was a rugged day for me. Even at the outset, I didn't feel as though, and I'm not making an excuse because we look back in time, we both we all have a bucket of maybe reasons why it, it played out as it did. I wasn't as fit as I would have liked to have been going into that race. And, uh, and it was just a kind of an unknown. I thought I'm going to race as hard as I can, but boy, I hope Scott's not right there. Well, he was right there the whole time. And we had this amazing battle that came down really to the very end. And I, I think, you know, we look at some of the women's races, if that finish line had been about a hundred meters further, Scott would have gone by me. Well, it's fascinating because it was, it was 33 seconds. And your your run splits, you were 304, he was 305, but basically you had seven minutes on him on the swim, and then he got seven minutes on the bike. So so were you guys running together early on in that marathon? Yeah, we we obviously pretty much got off the bike together and we, you know, we we were together, but then Scott had a had a gap. And um I was able to kind of open up that gap, and now I was in the lead. Um, and I'm not really sure what, what transpired in his mind. Like, why didn't we just stay together? The lead that I had, and I was keenly aware of this with about five miles to go, I had two minutes and 40 seconds and I was really seen dancing Buffalo by then. I just felt like, man, I'm, I'm completely losing it. My concentration was singularly focused on this tunnel straight ahead, which is really the asphalt. And I just said I had to maintain some semblance of of running form, and my my running form's ghastly anyway when I feel good. Uh, but I got a kind of a forewarning from one of my close mates, uh, Pat, and Pat was out on the course, and I'll never forget his line. He goes, "Tinley looks great. Come on!" <laughs> he didn't say he didn't say you look poor, but the insinuation was there that. 
you know, Dave, you look terrible and, and Scott's really pouring it down right now. You've got to hoof it in. I just didn't think I would be able to make it. I remember hearing another uh, report uh, with just under two miles. So we just come over, over the top of Polani. I don't even know how I got to the top. And it was now less than a minute. Uh, I heard 58 seconds. And I said, ouch, this is going to be close at the end. Scott was probably in eyesight of me at that point. And I just said, I can I hang on barely? Well, in the picture that Dave Epperson got at the finish, I mean, there's nobody home. When you look at your face, <laughs> you, do you even remember finishing? It's like you're trying to put your hand up. But <laughs> nothing was working. No, nothing was. I, I, I do recall, Bob, I, I thought, okay, I've got this. I had about 150 meters to go along the lead drive. The crowd was lined up on both sides. I could, I was aware of the crowd. I could see the people. It was very fuzzy. And I remember actually lifting my hand up to kind of acknowledge them. And I thought, cut the theatrics, I might tip over. And I did that a couple of times. And, and seeing the, the video after the race, my head was looking up at the moon. And uh, I just said, wow, this is this is wicked. And, and as soon as I crossed that finish line, fortunately, there were some people there. And I just almost collapsed because I hadn't I didn't have a molecule of fuel left. So then 84, uh, you win again, and ST gets second. 85, you're taking that one off, and you're, you're watching ST basically break your course record, I think, if it's not mistaken. So uh, then you guys come back in 86, and you win it, and ST gets third, and in 87, he gets third after you win, and he's just – and then he got second in eight, – uh, in, um, uh, he gets third, sixth in 80, 80 – what was it 89, 4th and 88. So he was always there. And then the year you didn't race, 1990, he gets second. And that was the one guy grip Mark was worried about because it was so hot that year. It's always hot, but really hot. And he was worried about Tinley running through the field, which is what Tinley normally, normally did. When you thought about the race beforehand, did you think about individual folks or was it just about, I just need to worry about my preparation? Well, I don't think any any athlete, including myself, can be so myopic. It's just me and only me. And if I just push myself, everything's going to turn out rosy. Um, I, I turn a blind eye and a blind thought if I said to myself, you know, I I don't have a little bit of fear for the best athletes. And and that includes Scott and Mark and, and uh, a, a few others that I thought, you know, could possibly – wiggle their, their way up there. I always felt confident on the run, but as we just went over in 83, my confidence was kind of eroding. And the, the other athletes were, were great runners. If they had their day, I thought, wow, it could come down to the, you know, the close finish along the Lee drive again. So yeah, I didn't really answer your question properly, Bob, but I, I was, I was keenly aware of the yeah. of the athletes. I knew where knew where I was in relation to them as best I was getting information on the bike, their X distance, you know, generally behind me. But I always wanted to know that gap. And my strategy always was, you know, not to wait, not to, you know, have it come down the run. I wanted to put more time on the bike. Right. I always wanted more time. I wanted more time when I got off the bike. And I wanted, wanted them, I didn't know, but I'm assuming that they had heard the splits, that they were aware of that time differential throughout the bike. 
So when I look at the way you raced, you were always that guy going off the front, right? Your first guy under nine hours, under 830, the first guy to run a sub three hour marathon there, then sub 250. Uh, You were always pushing those boundaries. And when we talked after your career was done, I think one of your frustrations was, I want to see somebody go for it because the times aren't coming down the way they should. I think you felt back in the day that guys should be running based on what they're running for half marathon. They're running, you know, they're running 106, 107, 108. Why are they running 245, 240 for the marathon in Kona? And now when we see a Patrick Lange go to Israel, which was a legitimate course and run a 230, it seems like we're getting to the point where, okay, this is, in your opinion, is this where we should be? Uh, I think where should we be? Um, Yeah. You cited some of the times, and, and I've seen the amazing male and female runners in the 70.3 races, and they're out of this world, 106, 107, consistently yeah. below 110. They're fast. 10K times are fast, way faster than, than me. I, and, I, and I think, and I just brought this up to a client the other day that I'm coaching. I said, if you can run your aerobic pace, now aerobic pace is really dependent on a lot of factors. When you factor in the heat and humidity, whether it's Israel or it's Kona, hot places, Arizona, uh, that takes a toll on your ability to dissipate that heat and your heart rate goes up and you consequently slow down. That's the game we all play. So throw that out aside, the athletes should be running faster. And I mentioned Jan Ferdano. I said when he broke broke his time, his marathon run was really slow. It's much slower than his aerobic pace. He's gone 106 and a half. And I saw that when he, when he did that in South Africa. Yeah. Yeah. It was remarkable, a great field of tremendous uh, victory. And, but yet the run times in Kona have not really transcended or replicated what a lot of the great runners are doing. Triathletes are are doing now in the short ones, they should be running faster. And, And of course I would like to see that, with uh, conditions as they are and the technology as it is, they should be running quite a bit faster in Kona. It's funny because you look at the times and you're going, okay, in in uh, 89, you guys were 809 and 810. And then you look at seven, you know, 740. But if you look at the, the swim times, you guys were always around 50. The guys now are, you know, 47, 48. It's only a couple of minutes. And the marathon this year, this year, uh, Gustav runs 236. You guys are running 240, 241. That's with plated shoes. And then the really the big gap is in the bike. You, know, you guys are going 437. They're going 404. Obviously, they're not 30 minutes faster than you guys are were back then. They're, the technology has made a huge difference. So when, when you look at those times, every, everything's been on the bike. So, you, you know, with the plated shoes, you would assume the guys not too far from now should be running the 220s, high 220s. I, I would think so, Bob. High 220s is, seems uh, doable. Uh, obviously, the wear and tear on the on the bikes, whether it's just the geometry of the bikes, the types of metals that are in the bike, the aerodynamics and all and all that, the clothes that, that we're wearing, uh, skin suits on the swim, which we didn't wear. You know, all the technology, of course, it has moved ahead and it's not sour grapes, but they're getting off the bike and they're, and they're running reasonably OK, but nowhere close to their ability. And I, and I saw Gustav in uh, 70.3 Worlds in, in 
niece and to just watch him run. He's just so elegant. And I said, well, he should come out here in Kona and completely smash this run course. So uh, I, I think looking at the bike technology, no one's going to deny what has evolved in all these decades that have gone by. And are the athletes better? In a lot of ways, they are. I think running-wise, as we just said, they're remarkable. Swimming, I'm not really sure. On the mm -hmm. bike, the whole thing was looking at watts, watts per kilogram on, before the bike technology really took off. Uh, was Mark Allen and Scott Tinley pushing less watts than the top guys right now on the bike? I doubt it. Yeah, I doubt it as well. How impactful do you think the plated shoes are? <laughs> uh, I think you have to play the game. Um, er everyone has them. Of course they have. You have to. You have to have them. Absolutely. You have to have them. So is it, uh, again, Dave Scott, he's an old guy, sour grapes, all these people are running really fast. Well, they, they know the science behind these shoes is quite definitive on how much time will these athletes make up in a marathon. And depending on speed, between about three to eight minutes, there's been a number of studies looking at this at the shoes I think the biggest difference in the shoes is that you are saved on the eccentric load. So if you're wearing the old shoes, when you would land at three miles into your run, you'd feel that shock go all the way up through your foot, your ankle, your knee, your hip, your spine, your core, and you'd feel it in your ears. 10 miles, 16 miles. So that wear and tear throughout the run was much greater with the old shoes. And I think that's why the resiliency of the athletes and the times that we're seeing collectively are faster uh, and they're faster in everything. I mean, look at the number of world records that were broken in just in running alone this last mm -hmm. year. And it's parallel to what we saw in swimming when they had the, the full skin Good. suits and they, and they, they broke, my recollection from 25 meters, 50 meters, all the way up, there was 130 world records broken and they finally banned them because they said, well, these, these athletes aren't, the greatest athletes ever, this nucleus of them, they've got these suits that are too advantageous. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the, the shoes have gotten to the point that it's not the athlete that's running faster. The shoes are allowing them to run faster. Well, and the other side of it is if you're riding 35 minutes or 30 minutes less, you're getting off probably less fatigued. And that allows you to run faster as well. It should allow you to run faster. Hard, hard to know, Bob. I mean, the times are extraordinary. Athletes are amazing. So I think, oh, it's, yeah. you know, two old guys talking on a pod, on your podcast, we can we can dish all these athletes doing well. But, you know, and I and I have amazing admiration for the athletes. I just love watching them perform. And I think that there's got to be some parameters set with technology. Well, it's interesting because you think about it. I remember when Brad Kearns showed up at the Desert Princess race with the 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 you know the dh bars scott dh bars and everybody was like what is that an irrigation setup what the hell you got going there and the next thing you know he's killing everybody and at the next race tinley and molina both had the bars so sure. it's, it's nothing has changed when somebody comes up with something technologically advanced you can't go to the start line unless you've got plated shoes unless you've got the best equipment you just got to level the playing field and then it comes down to your own innate ability but you know that that, that i don't think that's sour grapes that's the reality of te technology affecting sports. I remember watching Jack Nicholas telling the club, the golf ball manufacturers years ago, guys, you're going to have a problem here. You're, you're going to have to redesign every golf course you have out there because guys are going to be 
hitting the ball 350 yards. And that's exactly what happened because yeah. they sort of ignored what he said back then. Well, I, the, the technology, uh, obviously that, that uh, envelope is wide open and we've seen it. We can keep reiterating. We know technology advances this, the sport, but there's got to be some definitive protocol. You don't put a fairing on the bike because that really is cheating, you know, it reduces wind resistance. So where do you draw the line? And I think that, the shoes obviously are some a big element of the sport that needs a, a lot more scrutiny and it's got to be across the board where we say we can only go this far with is it the the added foam that's in there is it the midsole that's allowing this cushioning effect and and of course all the shoe companies they have their model and they're all fast exactly the other side that is the things that have changed, people are so aware of nutrition all the time, not just in racing, not just in training, but just in their in their daily lives. They're trying to make sure that they live a healthy lifestyle, maintain, you know, lean body mass. And then they add in the training and racing, which is I think we're developing fitter, fitter humans than, than ever before. Uh, how would you when you look back at your nutrition during your race days to what they're doing now? Would you have changed much? Oh boy, Bob. I mean, at, at the time, the, you know, the science again, it's just like the technology and the gear we talked about. Yeah. The evolution of this is we know a lot more. So what I was doing back then was current science, and it's shockingly opposite of, of what really the healthy uh status I'll say food, food-wise and intake-wise, aging-wise. And performance-wise, and so the athletes are obviously have gravitated to the latest science. I think there's still a lot of holes in what the science is out there because it's it, it's still driven by money. And yeah. so, if you've got a a great marketing budget, you can still perpetuate the the same things that maybe some of us followed way back when. And you know, a simple ex- example is: should we be eating? carbohydrates at X rate per hour? And should we be maintaining blood glucose at a, at a certain level? Well, maintaining high blood glu- glucose is the biggest problem in our country. The high blood glucose level, high insulin levels, high blood glucose levels is the problem that we have with almost all the diseases we have, at least a lot of the cancers, at least to the overweight and obesity epidemic and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. The big problem with 65 to 70% of adults and now kids is that they're eating excessive uh, carbohydrates. The athletes obviously are cognizant of what they're eating. They're trying to apply the science, but the whole science of maintaining blood sugar at a certain level while you're racing and sometimes extraordinarily high. So you need to eat more. You need to eat more carbohydrates. Total nonsense, absolute nonsense. Show me the studies on that. I don't buy them. So you were one of the first guys, I mean, coming back and racing the Ironman as a pro when you were 40 in 1994. Now you got, you know, for Dano and, and a number of athletes who have been, uh, Cam Brown, been successful into their into their 40s. How did you have to change? Because at that time, it was pretty revolutionary for you to come back at the age of 40 and try rather than than going, oh, race is an age grouper. No, I think I can still be competitive as a pro at 40 years old, which was considered ancient at that time. It was ancient at that time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of out of the, out of the box a little bit. 
I, I think, you know, big, biggest thing I'm through my career, I kind of oscillated and vacillated with extraordinarily high carbohydrate intake. I tried a vegan diet, I tried a vegetarian diet. This was throughout the six wins and the three seconds that I got in Conan, I was trying different forms of, of that dietary intake. And, and from an inflammation and a health standpoint, it was not really wise leading up to, to 94. I started eating more cold water fish and I started eating beef. Yeah. And, and, and I knew that strength training, which I've always been a big advocate of and also high intensity train within the, in my workouts. Cause I just didn't have the time. And I knew that time wasn't necessarily the factor. I wanted to be as strong as I could. So change the diet a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, main, maintain my strength training um, as well as I could. That has always been a prerequisite and it kind of stands true to this day for whatever I'm working for. Well, and when Craig Alexander, when you work with him leading into 2011, strength training, which I don't think he did a lot of, uh, became a huge part of, of your program for Craig, which allowed him to break the course record in Kona in 2011, win 70.3 Worlds and Kona uh, in the same year after uh, finishing, I think, fourth the year before. Did When you first got Craig into it, how, how long did it take for him to, to, to figure it out and adapt it to his schedule or to his program? Well, Craig and, and also Chrissy were extremely talented had already done well and uh, extraordinarily driven. Right. So when they found a loose cog in their system that, you know, it was easy to identify that they're asymmetrical. They didn't have good balance. Their strength program was very intermittent and, and sporadic. And there was no rhyme or reason for it. It was just pulling uh, exercises out of a phantom cloud. He realized that I need to be more diligent in doing that. And so I think I just kind of gave him the, the opportunity to do that. And I, and I remember we, after writing his sort of strength program, uh, he came back and he said, you know, this one exercise is so darn hard. And I, I, I show a lot of people different permutations of it. And a lot of people that are doing strength training, you can do a, with dumbbells, you can do a a squat motion and then you actually jump. So you're generating force up into a curl. Now you have the weights here at your shoulders and then you do another squat and then a jump press. So you finish it over your head. So squat, jump, curl, jump, press. So I had Craig, I said, Craig, do this exercise because you get a real big boost in human growth hormone is going to help your testosterone. And um, I remember him, once we put this into his program, he came back and he goes, Dave, this thing is so bloody hard. I nearly pass out after about four reps. And I said, yeah, you probably, I thought you might be able to get to five. Uh, but he, 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 you know, he was very, he was very motivated. And Chrissy, the same, that they took it upon themselves that, uh, they need to improve in that particular area. And, and a lot of the strength exercising increased uh, mobility in your shoulder and thoracic spine, your hips too. So it's a combination of uh, full body, like compound movements, multi-joint. And I think that helped both of the athletes because they weren't yoga teachers by craft. <laughs> so uh, I mentioned 2011. So that's the year Craig gets his third title and breaks a course record and the year that Chrissy's coming there, right? And she's probably in great shape leading in until she crashes. <laughs> and now it becomes a different game. It becomes, how do I get her to the starting line? Because her, she's got 
rash everywhere, ribs, she can't breathe, has, has problems swimming. That That's a little different than probably something you've dealt with before, an athlete who's that compromised leading into a race. And the fact that she dropped out the year before, there really wasn't a, oh, I'll just won't, I'll sit this one out. I don't think there was a way she was not going to go to that start line. No, she, uh, the, the, the day that she did it, my son, Drew, who was making his debut in, in Ironman, they were out on a bike ride. Chrissy rolls, rolls her wheel, takes Drew down. He, he ends up fracturing, uh, he fractured his wrist, calls me on the phone. And ironically, I had seen them out on the bike ride and there was three other people there on the bike. There was five of them. I said, well, I didn't want them to ride in any sort of pack. I knew Drew and Chrissy were pretty compatible. And then Drew calls and he said, well, Chrissy's down. I, and um, how is she doing? I, we were able to call. She's going off to the hospital. She's kind of beat up. Drew, I said, how are you feeling? All oh, my wrist is kind of sore, but I can ride home. And he had about 17 miles to get home. And then we came back and did a couple of things. I said, oh, things broken. So both of them were in the hospital at the same time. And um, Chrissy was a mess. But I spoke to her as calmly as I could. And the first thing that she said was, I'm still going to race, Dave. And, and this was 14 days outside of the race. So yeah. it became just a, such an intricate puzzle in keeping my confidence, her confidence, uh, and also just trying to you know, wiggle her back into some sort of semblance of what can we do? It wasn't about, boy, we're going to get in better shape in this last two weeks. We're going to have the perfect taper. No, everything was completely gone, even when we were in Kona. Right. And she ends up going to the emergency room uh, three days prior to the race. Uh, and she said, oh, my pec was so sore. Well, she just had strained it. It became almost this electric rod. And I just said, well, you can't swim until race day so it was adjusting every single day and um, her confidence as we all know her was just out of this world she said I, I can do this and she still went to the race undoubtedly with a lot of question marks and, and and I remember saying to her there's no race strategy in here except one seed and I said you're gonna know at x moment when you can win this race and she she really did at the outset of the run that that provided the margin for Marinda to you know not close that gap as scott tilling did to me in 1983 and and you know it was a heroic day for her and just magnificent victory did you have a gut that when if if she won that day that she would be hanging it up and uh, not coming back uh I always felt just on a on a, a great day. We've had all different types of weather days that she would completely crush the record. I thought she could go eight thirty something in Kona. Yeah, yeah. she was capable because she had raced well and was just, her fitness was just off the charts. And I had seen and worked with Chrissy to a fault, as a lot of athletes are. We're all driven. We're type A, we're manic, we're crazy about every element and component. And I always wanted her just to try to be more calm and relaxed during her off time. Yeah. And um, her current husband, Tom, who was a great athlete, was was there, which he, he was a you know a savior all the time, but it was still her mindset. So I I I thought she, you know she had several years left to 
exploit her talents. But I think she got, you know, she got to the point where it just mentally and emotionally was too challenging and too difficult to really override that. It wasn't the preparation. It wasn't the race day. It was just everything else that just consumed her about the sport. Well, and when you have that sort of perfect drop the microphone, not perfect from the perspective of that epic race, but having an epic race where you have a two minute lead over the best acknowledgedly or uh, what we would consider the best runner of sport, Marinda Carfrey, and you hold it that whole time. That's a lot of pressure. And to come across that finish line, knowing you've got your fourth, that's, that can be a great drop the microphone time for, for her. I, I, I know that Marinda was bummed. I think yeah. it took, it took Marinda a while to get that. She couldn't get focused for 2012 because she thought that she was going to be racing Chrissy and have another shot at her. She never got another shot at her, which was, which was hard. Right. No, I mean, they're both brilliant athletes. And, and uh, at one time I had both in my little swim class and I was coaching Chrissy, but my admiration for Marinda was always at the, you know, top of the charts. And I had said to her before the race and, and, and I had said this, you know, outwardly to Chrissy as well. I hope you two have the best race possible. Yeah. Go, go battle each other. Let's do it. And I, and I think, you know, accepting each other as, amazing athletes they knew that almost every race was going to be this dogfight. yeah that's awesome big d always such a pleasure to get to chat with you i always love uh, traveling down memory lane but also looking at what's new in the sport and yeah we're two old guys but we love the sport and look at what you do with your camps is you transform lives you get people who come out there who they may know a little bit about triathlon but they end up coming away realizing how special this sport is and it changes their life for the better. Uh, You were a coach before you got into this and still being a coach that has to be really rewarding. Yeah. The coaching part, Bob, I always think I'm a a teacher. So I'm I'm a teacher as opposed to a coach. And I've started this new Dave Scott performance team where I can uh, really have a hands-on day-to-day individualized program. I don't have many people, it's still open and it's been a fun sort of resurgence of just teaching people. That's what you like to do. I was a teacher too. Lois was a teacher. And well, that's, you know, I think when you're a teacher, you're used to working with parents and kids and you're used to bringing communities together and making sure that people don't kill each other. <laughs> exactly. And they, they, leave, they leave with a smile. Exactly. Always. Big D, thank you so much for always being so generous with your time. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, thank you, Bob. Again, Breakfast with Bob, not quite Cone Edition, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. The great Dave Scott has been our guest. We'll catch you next time. See ya.